Today, we are diving into, back into the book of John, and we, I'm excited about it. We're going to finish it up on Easter with one of my very favorite passages in, the, in all of the Bible. And so we're excited about that. I hope you're praying about who you'll invite to come and be part of that service. But to get us there, let me just uh, tell you a quick story. So when I was a kid, uh, moved with my family. We lived in Southern California, San Diego, for, for a while. My parents were going to grad school out there, and I was, I think, seven years old. And they took me to this place up uh, in Orange County called Huntington Gardens. And I can still vividly remember this beautiful botanic garden and the buildings and the, and the perfectly like manicured gardens. They had these beautiful Japanese gardens. I, I looked up, Googled some pictures of it um, just to remember. And I'm like, yeah, I remember exactly that. And vivid memories from when I was seven. I don't have a lot of like really vivid memories from seven, but that's one of them. And it really impacted me. And ever since then, I have loved beautiful like tropical garden spaces. I love going in nurseries and greenhouses and just there's something like peace. There's something that feeds the soul in those environments. And I actually think that there is something hardwired within the hearts of humanity um, that loves gardens. And I think that may be because that's where the story began for humanity, right? Um, we just finished the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's something interesting in there uh, that Solomon talks about eternity in the hearts of humankind. That as Solomon talks about eternity in their hearts, it, it's the big idea that there's this God-shaped uh, space within the human heart, within the human soul, um, that remembers this time when we were in a garden when our relationship with God was unbroken, before sin and the curse had entered the picture. And something inside of us aches for that moment. And also, I think there's something inside of us that is a little haunted by that moment. And here's where we're going today. We are going back into the Gospel of John. Now, um, like we said, we're going to finish it over the next four weeks. And I just want to remind you where the Gospel of John started, because a whole bunch of you are brand new to the church since we started this, um, probably since Christmas when we, uh, when we jumped out of John. Um, and so the, the book of John begins with a little phrase, and let's see if anybody remembers it. We've been in the book for almost, by the time we finish it, it'll be almost two years. Now, we've taken some big breaks. We've taught other books of the Bible and stuff. We jumped out. But uh, we've been in for a while. And so you may have forgotten, but John, the author, who probably thought his book was going to be read all in the course of like an hour or two straight through, he hasn't forgotten where it started and where it's headed. And he's weaving, masterfully weaving a theme together. And so he starts with a little phrase. Let's see if anybody remembers it. In the, in the beginning. Now, what's another word from the Bible for beginning? Genesis. You 11 o'clock crew are wide awake today. You guys are on top of it, so I, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, not the real early morning person either, so I'm your peeps. You're, you're my peeps, so anyway, um, so, so he is, uh, yeah, Genesis, Genesis, in the beginning, so right from the very start, he, he dives into the book by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the 
word was with God and the word was God. And he goes on to say it was through him, Jesus, that all things were created, that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. And this all, this language in the beginning is meant to draw our minds back to what verse of the Bible? The very first one, right? Genesis, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. And see, what he's doing here is he's bringing in his account of Jesus' life, he's building it in such a way so that you will see what he's writing about as a new Genesis. It's a new beginning for you and for me. And so today what we're going to look at are two gardens. One garden is where sin, shame, and failure entered the human race, where the first Adam rebelled against the Father's will. One garden is full of, of hiding. In fact, um, a, a, new, a brilliant New Testament scholar uh, wrote this, and it was so beautiful, I wanted to read it to you. He said this, He came looking for someone. He came on the evening breeze. He came as he had always come. Came because they knew each other and used to spend time together. Came to the garden because that's where they always met. That's where he was at home. And there was no answer. The man had hidden. This is the first garden. After the fall of humanity, the man had hidden. And we've been hiding ever since. Some of you are hiding today. Some of you, like the first Adam and Eve, uh, they took matters into their own hands. They sewed together fig leaves to cover their shame. And some of you put on a brave face. You've got a facade. You don't let anybody in to see what's really within. Some of you, there was a time in your past where you failed in such a way um, that it still haunts you today. You've never quite recovered from that. Some of you may be wondering, because of that moment, does God, if he's even really there, does he really care about me? Does he really want relationship with me? Would he want to know me? So that's the first garden. Now we're going to see in this chapter a second garden where Jesus, who is described in the New Testament as the, as the last Adam, the second Adam, where he would come and instead of rebelling against the will of the Father, he will submit to the will of the Father. And he would begin the journey that would restore humanity to relationship with God. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn on over? We're going to dive in in John chapter 18, verse 1. And here's how it starts. It says, when he, when Jesus had finished praying, and remember we're coming right from chapter 17, which is known as the high priestly prayer, the prayer that Jesus prayed for you and for me, for his followers. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. The Kidron Valley, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, tells us there was something special. See, none of this is by accident. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is also a brilliant author. And like I said, starting with in the beginning, he is weaving together a account here of Jesus' life in a beautiful and poetic way, and nothing's by accident. And he puts the Kidron Valley in here for, for a purpose. Because here's what happened in the Kidron Valley. There's a brook that flows down from the area where the Temple Mount is. 
And Josephus tells us that during this particular Passover, remember, it's, it's the time of the Passover. We've just come from the Last Supper where Jesus celebrates and has this Passover meal with his disciples. And during this time of the year, that brook, it was known as the Murky River. And Josephus said at this particular Passover, 256,000 sacrificial lambs were killed for the sin of the people. And Jesus, as the blood flowed down and mingled with the water, Jesus crosses over that brook. And in the first garden, a sheep had to die to cover man's shame as a picture. And now Jesus passed over the brook into a new garden where he would be led like a sheep to the slaughter. This is the garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is literally known, um, it means the oil press. It's a site where olives would grow and then they would be crushed or pressed in order to produce a pure oil. And in this garden, Jesus himself would, would be pressed as he cried out and sweat drops of blood. And as he cried out to the Father and submitted his will, to the will of the Father, not my will, but yours be done. And it says, now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so in the first garden, a sinless God went looking for a sinful man who was hiding in his shame. In this garden, shameful, sinful men came with swords and spears looking for the sinless son of God. And we see Judas. And he comes up and we don't have, John doesn't give us all the details on Judas, but what we know about him is he always had his own agenda. His heart was never with, really with Jesus. His heart was with the fact that if Jesus becomes king, he's going to be a powerful person next to Jesus. And so when Jesus, does, when it doesn't go according to the way he thinks it's going to go, Judas bails. He betrays Jesus. He says, I'm going to cut my losses and get something out of this. So he betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he's thinking he can force Jesus' hand into like starting the revolution. What we know is he didn't expect Jesus to be condemned to death. And afterwards, he's filled with great regret. But Judas comes with his army. It says literally a band of soldiers. And this is a detail that John gives us that the other gospels don't, that there's the Roman army that's there along with the temple guards. And a detachment of soldiers, as you study history, this could have been up to 600 guards. We don't really know. But there's, there's a, a crowd of soldiers and guards coming out to arrest Jesus, a big crowd with torches and lanterns and weapons. And John, actually, as, as we get the backstory here, John, what he's doing, um, what, we, what we believe from, from church tradition and history is that John wrote this gospel late in his life. And before that, like the gospel of Mark would have been widely circulated and Matthew would have been known and Luke would have been known. And so John's writing to an audience that already knows a lot of the details of the story and he's filling in some of the gaps for us. And so he's going to leave out some fairly, what seem like fairly significant um, details from some of the other accounts, but then he's going to highlight some things 
Why? Because he's telling the story, the account, to make a point. It's going in a destination and a direction. And he wants us to get the idea here of what Jesus is doing, a new beginning, a new beginning. And so he leaves out some of the things, like the disciples who fall asleep. Jesus goes off to pray in the garden, and they just fall asleep. Peter, James, and John, he brings them with him. Says, you guys stay awake and pray. He comes back, they're sleeping. He wakes them up. Come on, guys. Uh, he goes away to pray, comes back, they're sleeping again. He's like, oh my goodness, right? I make that's paraphrase, but third time he comes back after agony, the agony. They're asleep again. He says, Come on, guys, get up. And what John, what's interesting about John is he doesn't record that. He gives us some moments earlier in the gospel that we can see the turmoil in Jesus' heart as he knows what's coming in the cross. But now that moment is over. Now Jesus is ready. And he goes out to meet this moment face on, head on. Verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And as Jesus utters these words, I am he, in the Greek, it's ego ami. We've seen this over and over in the, in the book of John. And as, as Jesus utters these words this time, something uh, uh, amazing and miraculous happens. Uh, the sheer power of God, the glory of God comes out in the very utterance of his name. Because what is he saying? Well, in, in Hebrew, he's saying, I am which is how God reveals himself, his name, to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. Which is why when Jesus says this in the Gospel of John, we see that they pick up stones afterwards to throw it at him in, in the previous times. When he got up and he said things like, I am, I am the bread of life. He's bringing our minds back. They know exactly what he's claiming. To be on, a, on an equal platform. In fact, they say we're trying to kill him because he, he's putting himself on an equal platform with God. He, he is claiming to be God in the flesh. The light of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. I am. And this time, kind of like on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he goes up and he has this intense moment of, of prayer, and it's almost like the physical body that veils the glory of the Godhead. It can't contain it anymore. And if you remember the scene on, on the Mount as he's transfigured, it's like the glory of God just like beams out of him in this powerful, amazing moment. As the mountain's covered with a cloud. Uh, Peter, James, and John, again, were there, and it blew their minds in fact, Peter, decades later, still writing about that, going, we were there. We're not making this stuff up. We were there. We're eyewitnesses of his glory and his splendor. And we heard the voice of God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it transforms his life. He would never be the same after that. And so it says in verse 7, as, picture that scene. As Jesus says, I am, and, and hundreds of soldiers and swords go flying. Everybody falls back, falls to the ground. I don't think they knew what was happening to them. You'd think they would have turned around, but no. No. And they, as they pick themselves up and are recovering, then Jesus again, it says again, he asked them, 
Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. And it says, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those who you gave me. So he, he predicted in, in the prayer that, God, I've not lost one of them. Kept them all safe. And then verse 10 says this, then Simon Peter, so in the midst of all this chaos, in, in this thing, we know that Judas at some point betrays him with a kiss. That probably happens right before this. And they come up to begin to seize Jesus. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it. And John gives us that little detail on who, who this character is. It's Peter. He draws a sword. He, he drew it and he struck the high priest servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. <laughs> so Peter like he's standing up, he is defending Jesus. If you remember where we left off last fall, we were we started back up. We were in chapter thirteen, and the scripture that was at the little video at the start was of this amazing scene at the Last Supper, which was just hours before this, where where Jesus takes the base and the towel, he washes the feet of his disciples, and Peter. In that moment, after he washes their feet, setting an example, saying, I've, I've done this as an example for you. He says, you're, you're all actually going to abandon me. He says, one of you will betray me, but you're all going to fall away. You're gonna, all going to abandon me. And Peter pipes up and he says, not me. I would never abandon you. I would never deny you. I'll go to my death for you. And what does Jesus say? He looks at him and he says, I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter can't believe it, and Peter's determined not to do it. And so they come for Jesus, and Peter's like, I'm going to keep my word. And so he was just asleep. So maybe you can forgive his aim a little bit. I don't think he was going for the ear, it's not normally the battle plan, right? He pulls out his dagger, says a sword, because Jesus at one point talked about getting his sword, probably metaphorically, and Peter took it literally. <laughs> so he's like, I got my sword. Oops. And it's just chaos in this moment. And then Jesus looks over, and, and he commands Peter's like, put away your sword. Peter's determined, I am not going to fail Jesus. He's brave. He's with Jesus. He just saw all those dudes fall down. And he thinks now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And, and as you read through this, and as you read through some of the, the other accounts from, in the other Gospels um, of this moment, it becomes interesting. There's a, everybody is telling it a little bit differently. And what's interesting about this, especially when it comes to the, the crucifixion and especially the resurrection, some people who've been skeptical of Christianity have said, well, see, the details don't match up here and here. And so they say, this must not be true. Everybody's just kind of making up their own thing. When actually when you begin to, to read the accounts, it's like they, they all mesh up very well. But here's what's happening. In fact, there was a detective um, who was uh, very used to working 
cases and interviewing witnesses. And he was a skeptic, and he didn't believe in Jesus. As he began to study it, he, he came to faith. And one of the things he said about the witnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's like, it's just like when you're interviewing witnesses that have been through a traumatic event. Everybody remembers the details differently from their perspective, but they all add up to the same account. And that's exactly what's happening here. So John's telling it a little bit differently, and he skips some of the things. But as you, as you get the p- picture, the whole point is it's chaotic at this point. You can imagine a dark night and torches and a crowd and then Peter chopping off an ear. And John doesn't pick up this detail that's well known that Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus uh, picked up the ear and stuck it back on the dude's face, or hopefully his head, right? That would be... That would have been an unfortunate miracle otherwise. What's up with the ear on your face, dude? Um, so, but he heals him. The last miracle that Jesus is recorded like actively doing, obviously the, the resurrection is a miracle, uh, is, is healing the ear on this servant of the high priest that came out to arrest him. It's amazing. But, of course, we, we don't see that necessarily in here. And then there's another detail John doesn't tell us as well that's actually kind of funny because um, what we find out is all the disciples flee at this point. We'll see all but two here in, in, a, in a little bit. They probably fell back, the, these two. But Mark gives us this funny detail that John leaves out. Apparently, as the disciples fled, there was a bit of a wardrobe malfunction. And John says, or uh, Mark rather, and Mark, uh, historians believe the book of Mark was Peter dictating his experiences to, to the uh, disciple John Mark, who then recorded it and got the book named after him. And so as this is being like shared, um, there's this funny detail that he calls it a certain young man, and they don't include the name, you know, but everybody knew his name. And so a certain young man uh, was only wearing a linen garment. Apparently, it was hot in the upper room. He's like, I'm going to put my pajamas on and, you know, get ready for a good night's sleep. And Hall, he's got this, like, sort of lightweight linen garment. And as he flees, somebody grabs it, and he runs off buck naked in his birthday suit. It's in the Bible. You should read it. It's, it's really <laughs> Can you imagine being that guy? I mean, we're still, we're still teasing him 2,000 years later. <laughs> I imagine he had a nickname. Maybe he went on, we don't really know who it was, maybe he went on to like do great exploits for Jesus and he comes back from a missions trip. Man, we were in the corner of Samaria and all these people gave their lives to Jesus and they gave him a thumbs up. Yeah, good job, PJ. <laughs> like he never got over that, right? Because guys, that's just the way we are, right? Once you get a nickname for something, you got it, right? So in heaven, if you meet this guy and you put two and two together, just be like, hey, how you doing, PJ? Uh, I heard about you. A little snicker. Uh, So anyway, I think that's funny, but there's also a deeper meaning that you see when it comes to the the linen. See, they all, all the disciples had insisted they wouldn't abandon Jesus. Peter just was the first one to speak up and go, not me, Lord. Then all the others were like, yeah, hmm, me too. Yeah, none of us. We're all going to stick with you. They all insisted they wouldn't. Now they're all running away in shame. That's the point, in shame and in failure, like Adam hiding in the garden, the first garden. And Jesus in this moment tells Peter, put away your sword. See, in the first garden, a sword was unsheathed, but in this garden, a sword is put away 
because the way is being made for humankind to come back into peace with God. And Jesus continues, he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup, Peter? Like, I have a job to do. I came for this purpose. See, what John is painting a picture of in this scripture is Jesus is in control. Watch this as you go through the narrative this week. And then next week as we uh, finish up this amazing scene in front of Pilate. Watch who's in control. Jesus. Jesus. In fact, he, he tells us at one point, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And John paints us this picture of the true king who will drink the cup the Father has given. And he isn't caught by the surprise. He sets up the situation. Throughout the Passion Week, Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign. He's not a victim. And what I love, something comforting about this, is that his success is not dependent on the weakness or the faithfulness of his followers. Did you notice that? Their weakness doesn't stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And yet he invites them, even in their failure, even in their shame, he invites them into his purposes. And and that brings me comfort. Maybe it does you too. That despite our failures, despite our weakness, he's not dependent on you. He, He will accomplish his purposes. And yet he invites you in and he'll use you in spite of that to accomplish what he wants to do in a life that's submitted to him. Verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. They brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So these two figures, this, this rich, powerful, priestly family. And the high priest at this time um, was the, also not just the high priest over the, the temple system, but the president of the Sanhedrin, which in Jewish law and custom was kind of like a mix between the Senate and the Supreme Court. So very powerful person. And Annas had been the high priest for a number of years from the year 5 to 16 AD. He'd been priest, but he'd been deposed by the guy that came before Pilate. But he took over temple concessions. What's, what's interesting about that is Jesus now stands before the man who's success and wealth he threatened when he turned over the tables of the money changers. And his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the high priest. And, and John talks about him a little earlier in the text, and we see that he cynically makes a statement where he looks around at the other religious leaders and said, hey, it's better for you, it's better for our agenda, for our success, that one should die for the people. We'll keep Rome at peace. Don't want any uprising. We'll keep our position and our power. And he cynically looks around and makes this statement. And the Apostle John, the author of this this account, um, seizes on it and says that was prophetic. He had no idea what he was saying because that was going to happen. But it would mean something completely different than they thought. And so now we see that not all the disciples ran away. A couple of them must have like fallen back for a minute, but here's what it says. Simon Peter 
and another disciple were following Jesus. Because the disciple, this disciple, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So Peter, and as you put two and two together, you, what we discover is, is this is another appearance of the author. He's very coy when he writes about himself, but he mentions himself several times in the text. This is John. And, and some scholars think that because their father was a successful, had a successful fishing business, they'd bring fish down, they'd sell them, and so they had a relationship down in Jerusalem, you know, with the rich and wealthy people who'd buy their top-quality Galilean fish, you know, salted fish. Mm-mm-mm. Everybody loves some salted, dried fish. Anybody else? No, none of you. Okay, it was a delicacy. And so John gets Peter in. They're both in, and here's what I want you to observe about this. Peter and John are there. They're there at great risk to their own lives. What do we know about Peter and John? They're loyal. They're Jesus' closest friends. When Jesus, there's, there's three that go, uh, that are in the garden with him, Peter, James, and John. James is John's uh, brother. The two of them are known as the sons of thunder. Good nickname. <laughs> but Peter and John, these guys are the closest to Jesus, and now they're there when the others have fled. They're there. And actually, what's interesting about this text as you start to read this is I always kind of felt like there was this rivalry between Peter and John, and I don't necessarily, it's just from reading and stuff, but as I was studying this week, um, I had this realization I did a word search on all the times Peter and John's names come up in the New Testament, and it was really cool. Um, in fact, it, what you see in the book of John is actually Mark that was likely dictated by Peter himself is a lot more, it presents a lot more critical portrait of Peter and his heroics and not so heroics and the dumb things he says um, than John actually does. Because up to this point in John, Peter has had a sterling reputation. He was one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. He's the one when other disciples are peeling off and wondering if it's worth it to follow Jesus, he looks at him and says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to know that you're the Holy One. I mean the whole, like, don't wash my feet. No, I don't, I can't have you do that. And then, but you need to do that, Peter. Okay, wash all of me. Like, give me a bath. No, no. It's all right. We'll just do the feet, Peter. Peter pulls out the sword, right, to defend Jesus. And what I saw is really interesting. Like, as you go through Acts, um, anybody have maybe a relative that was in the army or uh, in the war? Maybe, you know, a grandparent or an uncle or something, and they, they were in a war. And, and they have those war buddies, and there's something about that bond, like they were, they went through stuff together. They were in the trenches together. And there's something about that that can't be replaced. Well, I think that's what you see with Peter and John. I don't think, now there's a bit of fun, friendly, uh, like rivalry, because John has to tell us that he outran Peter to be the first one at the tomb. Like John's like, yeah, I, I kind of beat him. But here's what you see in Acts. Go look it up in the first like eight chapters of Acts. Every time you see Peter and John, they're together. 
They're doing ministry together. They're like the ones that like saw the lame man in front of the temple and, and God healed them. And then they taught everybody the motion. This is a cool new, new song. Um, walking and leaping and praising God. No, nobody remembers that. That's an old VBS joke. Silver and gold. Anybody know that? Just me? All right. Oh, see. I guess you just didn't think it was funny. Okay. <laughs> but these guys are, are, are fast friends. Best friends. Because they've been through this. The worst moment. They've been through the highest of highs, the Mount of Transfiguration, and the lowest of lows. As the one they love and have served is on trial to a fake sham trial. But now... Peter is cold and tired and afraid. It's easy to have some bravado when you're next to the guy who just leveled 300 guys with his, uh, or 600, with his voice. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, I'll pull out my sword. It's easy to be confident when you're picking up loaves, baskets of leftover loaves and fish that you got to help pass out. But now he's there, he's afraid, he's cold. He's watching his savior, his leader, arrested, bound, being, being hurt. And he's wondering, what's going on? And so the servant girl asks him a question. Verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. And he replied, I am not. I am not. It's easy to follow Jesus sometimes when we see him working so powerfully. When we pray and, man, boom, there's an amazing answer. When we don't understand what's going on, when we don't understand why he's not answering in the timing I wish he would answer, we don't understand why this circumstance came into our lives, it's harder. And Peter's thinking back, the dude, the ear got cut off, I'm sure. Thinking I better lay low. And the fear rises up within him. And a servant girl asks him, not a soldier, servant girl. And he denies Jesus the first time. I am not a disciple. Peter's the guy. He's the guy, inner circle guy. It's always Peter, James, and John. He's always at the front of the list of apostles. He's the leader. Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of God, he says to Jesus. Peter, who, who says, Lord, if it's you, call me out onto the water. And then the dude walks on water. And we always kind of like, yeah, well, not for very long. I mean, he lost his faith and sunk into the You're still in the boat, providing the little critique on Peter's faith. He, I mean, this is Peter. He's the, he's the guy. He, he got to go fishing in order to pay his taxes. Jesus is like, hey, check this out. Go fishing. Go, go throw your line in and then um, see what's in the fish's mouth. Go pay the tax. He pulls up a fish. And there's a coin right there, and he gets to go pay the temple. That's cool. That's cool. He's one of the three there when Jesus first raised a little girl from the dead. 
He's on that mountain of transfiguration. And now he said, I don't know him. I don't even know him. Verse 18, it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire. They had made a charcoal fire. Tuck that away in your brain. That's going to be important in a couple weeks. They stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And here's what's going on here. This is a illegal questioning. And, and in Jewish law, they had something kind of like our Fifth Amendment, which is you couldn't make somebody incriminate themselves. And they're trying to get something out of Jesus. This is like a questioning where they don't allow the lawyers to be present. And Jesus says, what you're doing is illegal. You're breaking the law. This is a sham trial. And it says in verse 22 that when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Again, an illegal sham abuse of power. And then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, likely just in, perhaps just in the courtyard next to him. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? I'm sure this whole moment, Peter's been like, oh, oh, I can't believe I, I, I did that. Won't ever do that again. I promise this time. And what does he do? He denied it, saying, I am not. And John, again, is this is the most charitable account. Um, read the other Gospels. He gets pretty worked up. There's some profanity involved. I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Ah, oh, he pushed on that fear thing. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Wait a minute. And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly. can't believe he did that. I promised Jesus. He goes out. The shame is overwhelming. The rooster crows. But here's the truth. When the rooster crows, it's not all bad, is it? Because what does a rooster signify? The dawning of a new day. The rooster crows, sometimes way too early. There's this one time I was on a mission trip in Fiji. And um, I kid you not, this was crazy. We were sleeping in this little shack. And on two twin mattresses on the floor, um, two couples, my wife and I, next to this other couple, we were like head to toe, Willy Wonka. Anybody ever watch Willy Wonka? Like, that was us. My wife and the other wife were like sick as dogs with food poisoning. And there were these chickens all night. Like, they started going off at like, these roosters at like two in the morning and this other, my friend Chris and I, we were up like trying to chase away chickens. It was one of the longest nights of my life. Um, 
this. There's also a new beginning. It's signifying a new day. It's signifying Jesus wasn't done with Peter yet, right? In fact, here's what you see. As, uh, as we get to the end here, I'm going to invite Stephen up. We're going to close in just a minute with, with a song. But here's what you're going to see is Jesus wasn't done with Peter. In fact, on the morning of the resurrection, Jesus says, go. He talks to, to Mary and he says, go tell the disciples. And then he specifically says, and Peter. Like, and make sure you get the news to Peter. I'm coming for him. I'm not done with him. And Peter will be restored in, in, a, in a powerful way. But here's what you need to know. Here's, here's the characteristic of Peter that's so powerful. The very next time we see Peter, what's he doing? He's running toward the tomb. He's running toward Jesus. And Peter, in the midst of his failure, in the midst of his weakness, his heart was for Jesus. He ran toward Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, who was it? It was Peter who stood up and preached the word, and 3,000 were saved. Powerful moment, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter. Would you stand? Here's what I want you to get as we go into this song. Shame will always cause you to run away but a real understanding of God's amazing grace will cause you to draw near. Shame will cause you to try to like cover up and put up a facade and try to be something that you're not, like in the first garden where Adam and Eve hid themselves away from the Lord. Grace helps you realize the person you need to run to first is your father. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us falls short. Some of you, how many times have you told Jesus, I won't ever again? You know, sometimes our failures are noted spectacularly for everyone to see in life. Sometimes no one knows except for you and God. And hopefully the person or two you let in to pray for you and walk that journey with. You know, the key difference, I think, between Peter and Judas is Judas' heart was never really toward Jesus. And his shame caused him to run away and end it all. Peter, he knew he blew it. But he knew he had to run toward Jesus to experience the grace. He weeps bitterly, but he runs toward Jesus. Jesus had his heart. And here's what Peter would write late in his life. He would say this, when it comes to the coming of Jesus and how long it seems like it's taking, here's what he said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He knew that because that is what happened in his life. He turned around and he ran toward Jesus. To repent literally means to turn around, to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your direction. And instead of going away, he came toward Jesus. Some of you, you've been going away because there's something in your life that's keeping you from, from a closeness with Jesus and it's shame. 
And instead of running to your father, you're putting on a good religious face, so you show up and, and whatever, but you haven't been close to the Lord in many years. And there's a moment you can go back and point to, or many moments. He's inviting you, run to me. Experience grace and forgiveness. Not cheap grace. Cheap grace is experience the forgiveness and think I can just go and live the exact same way. Paul says, may that never be. What grace, when you truly understand it and embrace it, what it allows you to realize is it allows you to respond to him out of love and out of gratitude. And then allow him to transform your life as you cooperate with his Holy Spirit working in your life. And for some, like turning around means you've been saying, you've you've been feeling him drawing you to follow him. He's been inviting you for a long time and you kept saying, no, no, I just don't know if I believe it. And some of you know and you realize, "I, I, I believe it. Will you follow him? Will you turn towards him? That's the invitation here today. We're going to close by singing this song and then I'll come up and pray for us.